Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. Today, we're talking about Minute 43, which begins with Loki calling for help and ends with Hold My Beer Guy telling Izzy what happened. Joining us on the show today, as all this week, is Austin Titchener, creator of The Shakespeareance, co-artistic director of The Reduced Shakespeare Company, and producer and host of the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Austin, I gotta ask, you're obviously so interested in the, sh- in the Shakespearean world, you spend a lot of time with people who are. Do you remember when you first found out that Kenneth Branagh was directing this comic book movie and wanted to do it as a, kind of because of the Shakespearean elements? Like, I- I'd love to hear kind of what was the thought among Shakespeare people when they, they heard a Marvel comic was gonna be turned into a, a Shakespearean drama? I don't remember where I was, but I do remember when I heard the news, I went, oh God, that makes sense. That makes sense to me because Thor is a larger than life, you know, Shay, I mean, he's the, he's the one who speaks in an old English yeah. pun, for goodness <laughs> sakes. I mean, he's, he's absolutely a Shakespearean character, even though he's from Norse mythology. So, I mean, it made all the sense in the world to me. Um, and what's nice about being in the Shakespeare community that as I've become in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, um, is that, um, yes, there are some really serious poopy Shakespeareans, but the vast majority of them are huge nerds, just fantastic, great nerds. So this, um, these sorts of intersections are not, um, are not scary. I mean, I remember when I first joined the RSC in 30, almost 30 years ago now in 1992, we used to, and I, we were performing our only show at the time, the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged. We would get the question all the time. Oh, do you think Shakespeare is spinning in his grave? And um, we, of course our answer was no, but we don't get that question anymore. I mean, I somehow in the last 30 years, people have become much more uh, used to the idea. I mean, I'm not the person to ask about the, the, the Reduce Shakespeare Company's legacy, but I do think that one part of it is that we have taken him off his pedestal slightly so that people can enjoy him and play with him and make fun of him and and irre- be irreverently reverent towards him <laughs> or reverently irreverent towards him and still respect the work and I don't know, I think one of the one of the great things about loving a thing is loving its flaws as well acknowledging its flaws so um uh, the people i tend to see and hang out with the most are the ones who work on shakespeare and his relation to pop culture despite his problematic um elements and uh, and uh, and they choose to try to reckon with that in every production that uh, they do or paper they write it's wonderful here i've definitely seen that and i i have to imagine that what Kenneth Branagh did with this movie was probably one small part of it. Well, and I and I think Branagh is a great example of a populist. You know, he's absolutely a, a populist as opposed to an elitist artist, if that makes sense. So, I mean, those are those are wild generalizations, but I think it's true in Branagh's case. Well, look what he's doing with Agatha Christie. I mean, I think that's exactly the sort of stuff that he latches onto. I mean, I remember when Much Ado About Nothing came out. I was in high school. I think I was 17. And it just all of a sudden came like, you know, all the guys I knew, it was like, hey, if you want to impress your date, take her to this movie, you know? And because it was like, you know, it was, oh, it's Shakespeare. We're going to Shakespeare. Or I, I must be, you know, such this grandiose guy. But also, like, it was, it was a popcorn film. It was just this beautiful, beautiful rom-com with, you know, incredible acting. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, what we people people who don't work with Shakespeare a lot forget. He's all Shakespeare was always a populist. He always he only began to get into the night get rarefied into high culture in sort of the nineteenth century when there be, when there began a lot of specific societal gatekeeping, where you started charging more tickets for the for the for the rich people and giving the poor people separate entrances. So so the great un, the great wouldn't have to rub elbows with the great unwanted. And yet one of the great appeals of the Shakespeare's original gl- theaters where he performed the Globe, the Rose, the theater, it was a place where where where, where the great did literally rub elbows with the great unwashed. Um, and that was part of it. It was a great meeting place for ev- people on all levels of society. I grew up in New York City where Shakespeare in the Park, which is totally free, was a thing. And now it's become, you know, now people pay people to stand in line and it's become a little more elitist. But when I was 16, one of the things you could do is there was this great collection of rocks in Central Park on the other side of the theater. And I probably saw Patrick Stewart and the Tempest 30 times because we could just sit up on the rocks and look down into the theater and we didn't pay a dime. And it was just anyone could come and go. It was wonderful. So perfect. Perfect. We'll go in all that in just one moment after this quick promo. We love delivering content to our listeners that's free of ads that you just don't want to hear. We also love producing the show for you, but it does take time and cost money. Consider becoming a member for the season. Membership is just $5 per month, or you can get a discount if you join at the annual rate. Learn more at truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute. We were going to talk a lot about the Odin sleep. I think we actually got into a lot of that yesterday. So I kind of want to just jump to, not even jump, but like, we see Odin just kind of completely collapse. And again, just Loki's reactions. I mean, I don't know how many more times I can say Hilson's a great actor, but just I think all the feelings we've been talking about this entire week are just culminating in this moment for him. It's a very tender moment between a son with his father, especially after everything has just happened. It's like I, I love that there still is this moment of affection that he has and, and love. And so I, I find it to be a really powerful moment. I agree. And, and and I also love it from a storytelling standpoint, because you see Odin breathing. You could yeah, think true. he might be dead. <laughs> But he's breathing. All right. So he's alive, but he's there's something there's something definitely wrong. So from a from a storytelling standpoint, there's a suspense of, wait, what happened? He's not dead, but something's happened. Uh, and Andy, I think you had something you wanted to talk about uh, rob- robbing the poor guards who were called into this situation. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, the, the thing that I find so funny at this moment is, is, I mean, it's not funny that Loki calls the guards in. But what I do find funny, and it's just like when you think about it, it does, it, it's something that surely happened all through the periods of royalty and still happens. But you have these people who work as guards or whatever for uh, much bigger figures. And, and you know, for... The last several minutes, we essentially have been watching this as a as a scene between two characters, not thinking about the fact that, lo and behold, there are actually several guards just behind the door, just in earshot range, surely hearing all of the screaming and shouting going back and forth. And it's just the idea that what do these sorts of people hear over the course of these sorts of days that they have here? And what do they talk about with their families when they come home from work uh, after after the day as an and, and Harrier guard? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that could be an episode or three of What If yeah. in the second season. You know, just the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead <laughs> version of the guards in Asgard. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a real life thing. I mean, I, I watch The Crown, which I love. And there's a couple of great moments of, you know, whether it's Elizabeth and Philip fighting or Elizabeth and Margaret or later Charles and Diana. 
there's some great shots of like the guards outside the door hearing every word of the most elevated people of their nation, you know, fighting like this. And I, my mother was a huge Diana file. And, you know, half the books about Diana are written in part because those guards decided they would want to tell people what they heard, you know? So the, the, the idea <laughs> of the guard who will never mention a word about was, yeah, not so much anymore. But yeah, I think it'd be the Rosencrans and Guildenstern of this would be fantastic to see. What's what's great about the end of this, though, is that we go back to that fantastic God's eye view shot that Brana has used so often throughout this film. And it's a great way to kind of put a cap on this last moment here as we are directly above uh, Loki and Odin laying on the steps with the the guards coming down and the camera is moving. It shifts into that Dutch angle, which also Brana loves so much. I mean, it's just it's a beautiful way to kind of put the cap on this this final scene here. So then we get. Uh, a transition. We go from Loki being upset and then rushing Odin's body out. Now we're back on Earth in this diner. And one thing we've talked about is that Brando's trying to do something very difficult in telling, you know, two very different stories on two literal different planes of existence, two different worlds. And for the most part, I feel like he does it quite well. I'm curious if you felt this. For me, this one transition feels incredibly jarring. I feel like I needed more time with Loki or with Odin or something else because just I, the first 30 seconds, I'm like, I don't care about you. Take me back to Asgard. Uh, wh what did you feel when you saw this transition? I loved it because I guess I wasn't as invested as you because I know it's a comic book movie and I, it, it, it'll all come out in the end, I guess. And honestly, I don't know the comic books that well, so I didn't know whether Odin was, I guess, because he was breathing, I knew he wasn't dead now. So that that sort of eased it for me. But also I'm a big, I mean, as you might expect, I'm a big fan of 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 the, the comic relief. And um, to go from a moment like that to the this diner scene is full of such great fish-out-of-water comedy that I'm surprised Shakespeare didn't do more of, interestingly. Because it's such, I mean, the fish-out-of-water, it's it's great that you can have an, an epic Shakespearean movie and a kind of a dopey alien in America yeah. <laughs> kind of uh, comedy. And, 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 and they all sell it so well. I mean, Portman, Skarsgård, um, 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 uh, Hemsworth and who the gala plays Darcy uh, Jennings, Cat Jennings. I mean, they're all so great at 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 capturing the right tone, and I have to I have to credit Branna for that too as well. Well, and Cat Jennings, I mean, she you know when she works as Darcy and has has just the way that she delivers her lines that come out about like the stuff with the pop tarts and everything and just like the shock. I mean, it totally amplifies the comedy because she is so dry with the way that she kind of comments on everything. It's I know, right? It really is fun. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, th I think it's brilliant both well, a because of how Darcy evolves as a character uh, again, talking about the WandaVision TV show. But also, and this isn't Shakespearean, but you're an expert in old theater, right? Uh, like, it, sure, yes, uh, sure, it feels yes. to me like she, she's almost kind of a Greek chorus in this movie. Like, that so often when something incredible happens, we get a reaction shot from her. You know, she's showing us the, the person in the street's reaction to these events and kind of helping us as the audience know, like, yeah, this, this is how you're probably reacting to. Yeah, there's there's a um, I, I think of her less as the Greek chorus and more of just an audience surrogate, um, you know, giving the audience permission to laugh at the absurdity of this, you know, tell, telling the truth. I mean, I, I, 
one of the great the the, the the I think it's one of the truths of comedy is that t- just tell the truth, tell the truth, reveal the absurdities that maybe you haven't articulated yourself. Um, but telling the truth, certainly on stage, we get this all the time. Telling the truth of what happens that of what's happening right now in this moment gets a laugh from the audience because the audience knows we're supposed to pretend, right? The audience is in this. We are pretending that these superheroes are real. We are pretending that we're not in a theater. Um, that this is really happening. Um, uh, it's a it's a two way street, and and that sort of that sort of comedy is always wonderful when it when it, it it recognizes the truth that we are all in this storytelling adventure together. And Brana handles it really well. And I mean, I I already knew he could handle comedy from seeing when he did Much Ado, and just the way that he would kind of play that, and even stuff like Dead Again, which isn't a comedy film, but still it had those comedy moments that they played really well. And here, just the way that he uses editing to cut Thor eating so fast, like <laughs> eggs, cutaway shot, pancakes, <laughs> cutaway shot, more pancakes, cutaway shot. And it's just, I mean, it just makes it so funny because they're all so quick. It's like, how is this guy eating this much food that fast? And then the bit with the coffee cup, which, I mean, I still laugh and I still think, I mean, obviously it's such a great joke that they they finally decided we need to reuse it when uh, in the Loki TV show because it is so funny when he throws the coffee cup on the ground. I want to get into all that. I want to back up a little bit. Oh, the first, I just need to say, I- I'm very glad you brought up Dead Again, because you're right. There's so much great humor in that. I do need to point out that one of the funniest things in that movie is Branagh's appallingly bad American accent. Um, but moving beyond that. I think I'm bad with that, because I was like, I thought he did great. I think that's me. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah, boy. And it, it is a big performance, too. I tried to watch it again recently after having loved it when it first came out. And I and I kind of had to turn it off. It was a it's a big, big performance. <laughs> um, yeah. But even before we get into the diner, we get this wonderful shot of the the kind of city, the a little bit more of the town that this is all happening around the diner. And he tell us more about kind of what we're seeing in that shot. Yeah, we're here uh, back in Puente Antiguo. Uh, this is we're looking at Isabella's diner. Uh, we're going to meet Isabella here in just a moment. We're, it's on Main Street because, of course, it's small town America. It needs to be Main Street. And it's 110 Main Street. We've got a, a ready clean laundromat here. We've got the pet store we can almost see a little bit of. We can't quite get enough of it. We'll certainly be talking about that more. There's a place that's selling cocktails. There's a Greyhound bus because, you know, there's a Greyhound station here in town. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is this small town diner, right? I mean, this is exactly where we are in in kind of that small town America. It's got the writing on all the windows, uh, advertising coffee, steaks, eggs, malt, hamburgers, fries, milkshakes, homemade soup, like everything you could ever want in a small town diner. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it establishes kind of this this sense of this world for us, even though I still don't believe that this town has over 2000 people living in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing I love about Puente Antiguo is that I, I realized I noticed this throughout the movie is that it's it's a lot like outdoor Shakespeare that you see, which is usually in the evening, usually begins at twilight, because every shot of Puente Antiguo that we see, it's almost always magic hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> the sun is always low in the sky guy and beautiful exactly they love those shadows yes (laughs) and i'm so glad you brought up the diner thing because i love places like that you know uh i go on a lot of road trips with my partner and often we will make an intention you know we'll plan our trip that we're not going to stop at like a fast food place we're going to get off the the highway at some small town and find a diner. you know and it's always schrodinger's diner because you could go in and get some of the best fried chicken or chicken soup you've ever had or you could get a salad that clearly just came out of the refrigerator you know and has been (laughs) in there for five days with the dressing on it and it's just a great little moment of establishing like who is in this town. 
I also got to say, um, Austin, you, you haven't had to suffer through this, but we've been talking a lot about the uh, makeup and hair choices. I think this is the moment where Chris Heddleston's eyes look the worst. Chris, Chris Hemsworth. Like, there's just a couple of shots of him in the di- – Chris Hemsworth, sorry, Chris Heddleston. It, it just – it reminds me of my 16-year-old goth days, you know, when we were all using black eyeliner to make our eyes look smaller and make us look sunken in. Um, I actually at one point screenshotted and then pulled up a shot of him from Ragnarok, and his eyes look three times the size in Ragnarok. They're just – I don't know who was doing the makeup for this and the eyes and all that, but I, I don't think they worked again in Hollywood because, wow, it looks bad in this minute. This is not that's not exact. That's not at all where I thought you were going, because I thought you were going to talk about his wig. Oh, because yeah. <laughs> when it's when it's pulled back like this, 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 this is the moment where I went, wait a second. I'm not sure we looked at. I think they, maybe they got this. They got this shot in a real hurry. Yeah. That maybe, yeah. <laughs> Last looks. No, it doesn't matter. Just we got to shoot. We got to shoot. Well, they only have an hour of that sunlight. So, you know, like. <laughs> So then moving on, we do get one more of these great moments where, um, you know, I kind of in some ways I'm thinking about Jane, Darcy and Eric as the Earth version of the Warriors 3. They're, they're obviously much bigger characters, but so often something happens and we see each one of them react. And I love that, you know, in that moment, we should talk about this a minute ago, which could go into it more depth. You know, Jane wants to know about the science. She cares about, you know, what was it like being in that cloud? How did that happen? And Darcy's like, how are you eating all of these Pop-Tarts? And Eric is just staring. You know, and it just it, it it says again so much about each of their characters, the direction they go in that moment. Well, and 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 I don't know enough about the comics. Is is Eric a character from the comics? No, he's uh, he is created specifically for this, as is Darcy. Uh, the only ones we have here are Jane and Thor. Well, it's genius that Eric is a character here because and and played by Stellan Skarsgård because he brings that Norse authenticity, right? Yeah, that no Scandinavian kidding. authenticity to it, and and suddenly you are reminded. At least I was reminded. Oh, right. This th- there there are people on this earth who believe this stuff now. You know, it's not. This is not just ancient um, mythology. This is this is present day um, uh, influences. Um, and I, I, I just think that was a, a, a great creative choice to to again ground the fantastical in something that's actually true. And I love that you bring up Eric, especially because the more I watch him in this the more it makes me appreciate his performance in the Avengers movie. Because, you know, I hate the idea that mind control makes you a whole different person. And I I feel like what happens in the Avengers, because what we're seeing here is he has all this scientific curiosity, but he also has all of this this caution and restraint. And so what happens when Loki controls him with a mind stone isn't, you know, a totally new personality. It's the part of Eric that happens if you rip away all that caution and restraint. And and you can kind of see that conflict in him here. And it just makes me appreciate where he goes in the Avengers so much more. Well, and his knowledge of the I, – I, I think there's something um, – I think when he comes to embrace it, there is something really p- powerful and emotionally rewarding for him too because he is seeing his heritage – come to life and 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 knowing that it it doesn't come out of nowhere this is this is a real thing that exists on a different plane in a different realm millions of light years away uh, that feels like a great awakening and epiphany for him so in a, in one sense i can get also get understand and believe the mind control stuff because it's like i'm doing loki's bidding loki yeah. <laughs> this is great how much fun is this yeah. that's what i love about watching eric over the course of like from the time that essentially they hit Thor out at the atmospheric disturbance to like uh, through this film. It's like 
he's constantly like thinking about like he's hearing these words as as we'll you know talk in, a, in or talk about in a couple minutes he's hearing things that th- are coming out of thor's mouth that are totally bringing things back from his childhood and these stories that he had heard so i i find like his puzzlement it's really interesting to watch over the course of the film as he's put piecing things together and so then we do get to that glass that that uh coffee mug smashing moment that we talked about there and again it's I love this moment because it's two things colliding at the exact same time. It is a comedic moment. It's played for laughs. And yet, if you look especially at Jane and Darcy's reaction, especially Darcy, it's also this is the kind of uh, the angry man who punches through the wall. You suddenly realize, like, this person could hit me. This is not a safe situation. And I just it's so well done in that moment. Well, it it is, and it's also again played realistically. They, both both uh, um, Darcy and and Jane and the other uh customer in the diner all jump suddenly <laughs> the other customer gets up and walks out <laughs> what the other customer like after it happens like gets up and like goes out of the place quickly like i i don't want to be here well it's almost as if hemsworth did it earlier than they rehearsed it i mean it's just <laughs> that genuine a moment and which is really right it helps sell the inappropriateness of the behavior at 34 seconds there's Darcy just has this look of it, it tells me that like because up to now she's always been the one who was like yeah I can tase him he's pretty what she's never been as concerned as the other two that moment it seems you look on her face you see this is where she really gets this is a scary person and the next second the next moment about this is that he genuinely apologizes and genuinely agrees sincerely agrees to not do it again his fascination with Jane, his desire to um, make her happy is very real, as played by Hemsworth. What's interesting, though, about Thor before Jane says anything to him is like he's treating the whole thing with such that royal mindset it was like, yeah, I mean, I was telling them that I was I was satisfied and I wanted another. And it's it's such a like he still kind of has this sense that these are all people who are beneath him, like everybody here is a lower status and he still is this prince. Like it's an interesting mindset that he still kind of has is locked in with. Well, and he's not wrong either because he can walk into the middle of traffic and a car and a truck can hit him and it wouldn't hurt him. <laughs> I think that's a part of it, the arrogance, but I, I did some deep digging on this moment because I'm, I'm Christian religiously, but my father's Jewish. I grew up in Judaism and in Judaism, the smashing of glasses is a, a very important part of the religious ri- of the wedding ritual. And because Judaism is diaspora religion, like there's so many different contexts, you have eight different explanations for what that means. But it was something I was always fascinated by, and I did some digging into it. And so I, I kind of re-looked at a lot of that research. You know, one of the interpretations of it is this idea that you could never, one of it is the idea of extravagance of like, this is such a joyous moment that we can smash our glasses because look at how rich in life we are. That's very much the Greek tradition also, like when they, they're, that's, that's what they're doing. Yes, very much so. And and the whole, like, you know, rich people throwing the champagne glasses into the fireplace at New Year's. But the other tradition, well, there's like nine traditions, but one of the other ones that I found and, and did some more digging on is the idea that in this moment, the glass holds so much joy, it could never hold that kind of joy again. And so we'll get, you know, we're going to smash it. And that I, I found was derived from an earlier tradition, which was kind of similar, which was the idea of, you know, this glass could never hold something so perfect as it does right now. So no one should ever use this again. And that apparently, like, not this may be more folklore than reality, but the the idea is it was kind of an understood custom. If, you know, a lord or lady came to your pub or to your inn of the Middle Ages and they, they wanted to compliment you, 
they would smash the plate or smash the mug. And then, of course, they would replace it. But it was like seen as this high compliment of, I love this so much. This mug can never do anything. Give me another. You know, and I, I, I think you're right. A lot of it's the arrogance, but I think some of it's the way he's just so like, but but I did just ask for another. What's wrong? Kind of makes me think that maybe this is another, you know, fish out of water cultural moment. I think there's some of that for sure. And and this is the moment also where we meet Isabella because uh, she notices what just happened. She hears the the smashed cup. Uh, this is uh, Adriana Barassa. She is uh, she is an actress who you know got a lot of uh, notice in the mid two thousands and uh, certainly has been keeping busy. But uh, interestingly, like um, hasn't done. Um, uh, I mean, she's she's still in in movies, TV. She's still kind of all over the place. Um, both here and in Mexico. But I feel like uh, when you look at what she's done on IMDb, a lot of it is the stuff that came out in the 2000s. Um, um, so IMDb game, we love to do this when we get new performers here. And uh, unfortunately, she's given so little to do here. Like, I, you wouldn't even know that she's a, a character you're supposed to pay attention to. Uh, certainly a lot was cut out from the script. I'm literally looking her up now because I don't even remember the character. Yeah. I'll just tell you, the four things that IMDb says she's known for are Babel, the film Babel, um, where she got an Oscar nomination for. That oh, was kind yes, of the big that. thing uh, that uh, that came out for her back in 2006. Second up is Drag Me to Hell, which I absolutely love that film. Uh, I thought Sam Raimi was just having a lot of fun there. She played uh, Sean Sandena in that one. And then Thor is number three, even though her part is minuscule here. Last but not least is her part in Rambo Last Blood from just a couple of years ago. So. <laughs> I, I can't say I saw that one. But yeah, I, I, I remember her face ringing a bell when you said to kind of pay attention to her and, and the bell will make sense. I love that she's here. I love that she has this moment. I wish, again, that there was more of her. I mean, obviously, they were casting an actress who had the ability to do a lot more. She's just given so little in this part. Um, and then we have her, I, I guess, one of the waitresses come over to do the cleanup. This is not a person that uh, I can't find her on IMDb at all. Her name is Melinda, according to her name tag. But I don't see anybody that looks like her on the cast list on IMDb. So I have no idea who plays uh, Melinda at the diner. And going back to the the interactions in the diner, Austin, I love what you said about the he clearly once he realizes what Jane is upset by, he clearly is affected by that because one of the things that I, I feel like it, it's it's a little bit of a, you know, Thor's not quite as bad as he may seem. Uh, you know, a thing that comes up all the time is this idea, you know, of, well, I hate that a person does this. I hate that a person does this. Okay, have you told them? No, they should know. Like, Thor should be paying more attention to the people around him. But we've seen that, like, he's been spoiled rotten as a kid. You know, everyone around him, no one's ever told him no. No one's ever said, actually, Thor, we don't like when you do this. And I I think that's a real part of why this moment's so important that you put your finger on, that Jane's saying, hey, I don't like that. And Thor's immediately like, oh, well, then I won't do it. That's fine. I think he has a consistent inability to read the room. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, but but again, it's like the choice of uh, it's like Hopkins' choice to uh, to be gentle when he gives the news to Loki. I mean, as gentle as he could be, he could have played it any number of ways, but he didn't. He played it uh, lovingly and sincerely, and I think Hemsworth is doing the same. I think it's part of Hemsworth's enor Hemsworth's enormous charm, also. You know, because you have to buy into this romance between the two of them. And uh, I think this is absolutely one of those, again, one of those fundamental moments where you begin to see that. 
and just in the way that you, you you mentioned the fish out of water thing before, you know, she says deal and he says, you have my word. Yes. And it's just such a like they are talking, you know, English languages from hundreds of years apart here. Right. But meaning the same thing. Yes. And I and I, and I love the colloquial versus the formal, which is in there. It's great. It tells them a lot, tells you a lot about their characters. Well, and, and also the delivery is I mean, there's something about the way he delivers like he actually pauses, takes a look like almost into her eyes very deeply as he says it as a way to like kind of firmly plant that commitment to what he's saying i remember when i i first saw hemsworth as uh, many maybe many people did as 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 george kirk right in the reboot mm-hmm. of star trek and he had that great five minute opening scene and i just sat there going who is this guy and why is he not the lead and i mean i like pine i i, I then chris pine came on and i was fine it was all good but i went where did they find this guy? He's he's I think he's I think he's a really good actor and I'm not sure he gets the credit for it that he uh, that he deserves. I think that's true. I one of the things I did is research is I went back on Rotten Tomatoes and just read a lot of reviews of this movie when it came out. And there was one reviewer um I forget who, but what they said was that they went into the movie based on the advertising and posters, thinking that the most important thing Chris Hemsworth was bringing to this performance was his pectoral muscles, which I will say are fantastic. I'm glad we got to see them. But yeah, I think a lot of people were just incredibly surprised that, no, he actually is a, a solid actor. And I, I do think in some ways he's a like he he's it's hard for him in this movie because he's in the shadow of Hiddleston and Hopkins, who I do think are miles ahead. But especially in some of the later movies, and but even you're right, even in moments like this, you really do get to see he's not treating this as let me just show off my body and swing a swing a hammer. He's really bringing his best acting game, acting and comedy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And so, so then uh, at 48 seconds, we do get a fun moment that I thought was in an earlier minute. I think I'm just hallucinating, but maybe it's twice. But uh, here we clearly see a truck drive by. And it just has nothing in the bed. So it's a clear reminder, like, yep, the, Stanley's truck not is... nothing in the bed. There is no bed. There's no bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. You got the whole yeah. back of the truck. Again, as a person who works in car maintenance for a couple of years, I don't think that happens as, as, as easily as it would seem, but yeah, right. <laughs> fair enough. And then the minute ends with the return of Pete and, uh, as I like to call him, hold my beer guy, drunk townie. Pete and Jake. It's world building. You know, I love the idea of not just our characters have to say everything, but sometimes they just they're in a diner. People are talking and you overhear random things. Well, yeah. And I mean, this you know, it very much ties back to what we had seen. It's going to be kind of fun to kind of kind of have all of this connect now. And that's that's kind of where um, where we are, where Jake and Pete come in. They're going to talk about the day that they just had. And we're going to learn all about uh, what that is in the next minute. So it's a it's a good setup. Well, and the uh, those those Jake and Pete and that whole that whole scene of them trying to uh, Jake and Pete and Stan Lee <laughs> and that entire sequence of of trying to uh, lift the hammer off the ground is ve- is a very Shakespearean comic relief with the rustic mechanicals, the local townies who are trying to do something that they're clearly incapable of doing. It's it's uh, it, it's a tale as old as uh, Shakespeare. So true. So I think that's a good time to wrap up. Any other last comments either of you want to bring up? I think we're good. Austin, we've heard a lot about the great stuff you do. Um, we were talking earlier about we love feedback from fans. If people want to uh, kind of respond to stuff you're saying here, um, you know, give me your phone number. No, I mean, honestly, but do you have a Twitter or, you know, like other things that are uh, for the fans to send send comments to you? 
but here's my routing number and my pin number. <laughs> uh, no, I'm uh, I'm I'm easily reached on uh, on Twitter at Austin Titchener. That's my that's my preferred um, social media platform. But I'm also on Instagram at the dot Shakespeareans. So I'm pretty easily to, easy to reach. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for that, Austin. And of course, for people who want to give feedback about this podcast, you can find all the links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Austin and Andy. Thank you to all of our fans, and have a good day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Mm-hmm.